Guys, Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. There is no other name and the power and authority in who Jesus is. And we need to live in that. We need to breathe and live every moment in who he is. Welcome to everybody that's here. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are honored and delighted that you chose to celebrate the resurrection with us. And those watching online, we say hello to you from your Novation family. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. He is more than enough for everything we need for life and godliness. And so I pray this morning... Jesus, that your name would be lifted high and glorified. We thank you for your victory over sin, death, and the evil one, and what you did in your life, death, and resurrection. I pray for all of us watching or in this room for our faith to grow and be strengthened and cemented in the authority of who you are, Jesus. I pray for your glory. Amen. In the, in the Bible, the number three is a number of emphasis. You'll see several times where God will repeat himself three times when he's trying to make a point. And it's kind of like when your mom called you by both your first and middle name. <laughs> like There's a em- point of emphasis that's going on here. And today we're going to talk about three days, that Jesus was in the grave for three days. That's, that's not happenstance that it was three days. There's a, an intentional point to the number three. And as I was thinking through the number three, I started thinking about sports and famous sports people who wore the number three. And I thought, Russell Wilson in our own backyard. Hopefully he has a better year this year, right? Amen. <laughs> Somebody shouting amen. The mo- probably the mo- most famous number three is Babe Ruth, right? The Babe. It was funny. One time a reporter asked Babe Ruth, they said, what do you feel, you know, the reality that you made more money than the president did? And he said, I had a better year. (laughs) So true. And I thought of movies, The Three Stooges, right? Okay. The Three Amigos, great movie. The Three Musketeers. And then when it comes to music, ZZ Top, right? That little old band from Texas, three, three musicians. Maybe the Jonas Brothers? It's for the younger folks that watch. How about Rush? Then when it comes to science, you think about H2O or water can take the form of liquid, ice, or steam. And then an egg has, is compo- composed of a shell, a yolk, and a white. The white part. The yucky part. And then in theology, the most important is our God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. So today, we're going to talk about three days that Jesus died on Friday, but on three, three days later, he rose again to be triumph over our enemies. Now, it's important to understand that in that culture of the time of Jesus and in that culture... To be dead for three days meant you were really dead. Like you were, you were really dead. And you see this in 
Luke's gospel in Luke 24 where Jesus is resurrected and he's walking with a couple disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're, they don't recognize Jesus. And they're lamenting that he had died. And they said, yeah, he's been dead for three days, which meant, is emphasis, he's really dead. And they were, they were heartbroken. This morning we're going to read from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And if you want to take a peek at this on the map here on the screen, Corinth is a, still a city today in, in Greece. And so Paul, on his missionary journeys, would go throughout the known world, and he would go and preach the gospel. He would go preach what Jesus had done. And he, in Acts chapter 18, you see him going to the city of Corinth. Corinth was a place where they worshiped the Greek god Apollo. And this is a picture today. If you go to, to Corinth, you can see the remains of the temple to Apollo. That's modern-day Corinth. This letter was written about 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And sometimes people try to say, well, this Jesus thing is a myth or it's a, it's a legend. My daughter right over here, Chandler, is 24 years old. Oh, look, Chandler, they love you. Um, I remember the day of her birth like it was yesterday. She was born at 11 a.m. on a Thursday at Swedish Medical Center. I remember calling my parents, and then I called Chris Ingalls and told him, I'm not coming into work today. We were working together, and that she was born. You don't develop a legend in 20 to 25 years. Like, you remember it. You, you can talk about those days like it truly was yesterday. When it comes to American history, we have this document called the Declaration of Independence, right? Written a couple hundred years ago, but it was signed by eyewitnesses to the Declaration of Independence. And we fully embrace its reality that it's not a legend. It's not something that was made up. Same with what I'm about to read to you. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news or the gospel I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. <clears throat> it is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important. And what had also been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. 20 to 25 years, this was, he was telling who had seen Jesus and that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. So I'm going to use three days as last week I used three nails 
And next week, I'm going to use three times when Peter denies Jesus three times and then Jesus restores him three times at the end of the Gospel of John. But today, I'm going to use three days as, as a way of opening up the truth and the reality of what Jesus has done for you and done for me. First of all, three days means we have a living Savior. We have a living Savior. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Later in this epistle, this this letter written to the church at Corinth, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. I'm a big fan of an author named Dallas Willard. And some of his books have really, really affected, you know, how I see things. He's a great Christian author. He's in heaven with Jesus now. One time somebody asked him, they said, why do you follow Jesus? Well, he responded, who else do you have in mind? He said, if there is someone else who can validate their claims like Jesus, then follow them. If the event of the resurrection is true then there is no possible way we can overstate its importance. If it is untrue, then Christians are idiots. (laughs) Andy Stanley once said, he said, uh, if a man can predict his death and that he was going to rise in three days and he pulls it off, let's just go with what that man says. That's the truth right there. Considering the claims of Jesus, if you're a skeptic or you know someone that's a skeptic concerning Jesus and and the Scriptures and the New Testament, um, I would ask anybody, consider what he claimed and what he did. Because what what he claimed was amazing, like... C.S. Lewis, who many of you probably know, he, he was a skeptic. He was an atheist during kind of the World War II era. And he, he ended up writing a book called Beer Christianity. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and um, just a phenomenal writer. But he was an atheist. And J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, basically discipled C.S. Lewis into becoming a follower of Jesus. These two brilliant minds would sit around and have a pint and smoke uh, pipes together. And they, there's a whole story about it. But he, C.S. Lewis ended up reading the Bible for himself, looked at the, the history, uh, the facts behind the scriptures, and he became a follower of Jesus and an incredible influence. And he wrote in Mere Christ- Christianity, he said, don't call Jesus a mere mor- moral man or a good teacher. He said, he didn't leave room for that. He said Jesus was either a liar and he was speaking lies about the things that he said about himself or he was a lunatic um, out of his mind thinking he was God or he's truly the Lord of all. But he said he didn't leave any room for just being a good teacher, just being a good man. In other words, he can't stay neutral when it comes to Jesus. There is no neutral. He either is the Lord of all or or he's not. We say he's the Lord and agree with that. So let's look at the claims of Jesus. What are two main things that Jesus said? First of all, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. In history, there's been many people who claim to be God. The pharaohs of Egypt said that they were gods. Many kings and emperors said that they were God. If you go out on the Google and you see... um, Google people who think they're God, 
you'll see there's at least 10 people today who think they're God. There's a a 66-year-old man in Brazil who says he's God. And we look at that and we say, hello, nut job, right? Like this, you're out of your mind to, to claim to be God. And this really is what got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders. Not only that he was the Christ, but that he was the great I am. That he was the, the same Yahweh that, that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. That he was God, that he had always existed. The, the religious leaders of his day were really bothered by his claims. There was a time where Jesus was talking to them in, in the Gospel of John. And he said that he, before Abraham was, I am. And in the law of Moses, to blaspheme they would pick up rocks and stone you to death. So that's exactly what the religious leaders did. They began to pick up rocks. They were going to hurl them at at Jesus. And they said, you, they said, they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. That's what ultimately got him crucified from a, a religious point of view. They had no idea. They were just fulfilling the plan of God. But they they hated this idea that Jesus claimed to be God. Second thing he claimed was this. He claimed that he would rise from the dead. He claimed that he would rise from the dead. And the resurrection, which we're celebrating today, and we celebrate every day, was a validation that he was God. Three verses where Jesus says this out of 25 possibilities. In Matthew, he says, For as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then one time Jesus was outside the physical temple and the religious leaders were near him. And he, he looks at that temple and then he points at himself and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. That's a pretty big claim. <laughs> I'm God and I'm going to die and I'm going to raise myself from the grave. Then in Mark's gospel, then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. Now, if he stayed dead, he would just be a martyr, right? He would just be like anybody else martyred for a cause, but he didn't. His resurrection proved that that God had accepted his sacrifice. Years ago, I read this book where this uh, lady went to to Jerusalem. She went to Israel, and she uh, met with some some rabbis. And they explained to her the meaning of, in John chapter 20, verse 7, when the apostle Peter runs to the tomb where Jesus' body was laid, and finds the tomb empty. But in in the tomb, there was Jesus' grave clothes, right? But the face cloth, or some translations call it the napkin, was folded up all nice and neat and sitting next to the grave clothes. And they told this lady, they said, you know, from a Jewish, ancient Jewish understanding of this, is when you in those times would go to someone's house for dinner, And if you enjoyed your meal, you would just throw your napkin on the plate and burp and walk away and enjoy what the meal that you just had. But if somehow you were offended in this person's house, 
you would take your napkin and you would fold it up nice and neat. You'd put it on your plate. And that folding of the napkin said, I'm never coming to this place again. I will never come to this place again. Jesus, by folding the head cloth, the napkin that was around his face in his grave clothes, was saying, I'm never going back to the grave. I'm never dying again. I died once for all, but I'm never coming back to the grave. That's beautiful. How can we be sure that he rose on the third day? I think this is important. How can we be sure? We weren't there. How do we know? Well, I think there's, there's three evidence that we can look at to understand. And the first one, if you want to put your law and order hat on with me, how many like law and order? All right, okay, okay. Um, we're going to do that for a second. Let's look at the, think of the legal evidence about the resurrection of Jesus rising on the third day. First of all, the tomb was empty. There was no body where they laid the body of Jesus. So critics, all they had to do was present a body, and then you knew that this was some kind of hoax, right? The resurrection story could not have maintained if it had been made up. There's no way. If this was a hoax, it would have died off. In Matthew 28, we read about how the Pharisees and the religious leaders, when the the soldiers saw what happened at the the seal of the tomb being broken open, and they were blown away, and and, and they ran to to the religious leaders and told them about the resurrection of Jesus. And they said, listen, don't tell anybody what happened. Uh, we're going to give you some hush money. We're going to bribe you. We'll, we'll just say that the disciples came and, and stole the body. That's kind of dumb. The little disciples are going to come with armed Roman soldiers and guard and push away uh, the seal of the, of the tomb that weighed like two cars worth of weight. And then they were going to overpower these guards and steal Jesus' body. There's no way. But they tried, and that's the rumor that Matthew says began to spread, that the disciples took his body. And then there's a a theory called the swoon theory, that Jesus was in so much pain and agony on the cross that he basically fainted for three days. He was unconscious, and then all of a sudden... He just woke up one day, and here he was back, able to you know, push away the stone and all, all of that. No way. Some people believe that. But the most important legal evidence that we have to bank on is that 500 people or more saw the risen Jesus. In a court of law, if you have two or three witnesses at, a, let's say, a traffic accident, two or three people basically say the same thing of what they saw, that's a slam dunk case. You got 500 people that witnessed something, that's the real deal. Second evidence is the historical evidence. Again, 20 to 25 years, this document that we call 1 Corinthians, this letter that was penned to the church at Corinth, not enough time to be a legend. It's based on a historic fact. Whether we agree with it or not, that's between you and the Lord. But to say it didn't happen, you don't have any, there's no leg to stand on when it comes to that. Here's a couple important things. Who were the first people to see the empty tomb and see Jesus? They were women. 
In, in those days, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law. So why would he first appear to women? That's because he didn't care <laughs> about any of this. He knew who he was. This was passed down. Think about Peter, pre and post resurrection. The apostle Peter walked with Jesus for three years and said, hey, if I have to die with you or for you, I'm doing it. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times even tonight. And by the third denial, Peter is told by a little girl that, hey, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. And he got ticked and he cussed at her. And he said, I I don't even know the man. So he wept bitterly after that. But after he saw the risen Jesus, he was willing truly now to lay down his life. And he ended up giving his life as a martyr uh, for, for preaching the gospel. What would have made the disciples, what would have been their motive to spread this word that Jesus had rose from the grave if it had not been true? It wasn't money. They weren't getting paid. All they were doing is getting beaten for it. Every time they would talk about the risen Jesus, they were, they were beaten either by the Romans or by the religious leaders. Who's willing to die for a lie? Then you look at the book of Acts. It's a, it's a, a detailed outline of the early church and what had happened as they began to tell the world from Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth about the gospel, about what Jesus had done, the growth of the church. I mean, when you write a check, if you do that anymore, but uh, not many people write checks, but when you look at a date, you have B.C. and A.D., the B.C. is before Christ, A.D. is Anno Domine in Latin, which means the year of our Lord. So time started over with Jesus. And then lastly, the experiential evidence. The Apostle Paul was a religious terrorist when, he, when they started preaching uh, the gospel about who Jesus was. And he would go and round up Christians and and kill them and put them in jail for talking. They, he, he saw it as such a threat to Judaism. And then he experienced the risen Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the road uh, to Damascus. And he saw the risen Jesus and his life was transformed. He became the apostle of love. Went from being a religious terrorist to loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving people. And that, that haunted him kind of all of his life when you read his letters. The, the, the church that, that Paul writes to in Corinth, uh, the church at Corinth was, man, Corinth made Las Vegas look like an Amish village, literally. Like to Corinthianize somebody meant to um, do bad things together. And that meant to Corinthianize. And they were transformed by the gospel. They were transformed experientially and made new creations, as Paul tells them. If any man or woman be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. So many in this room, you've experienced the transforming power of the resurrection. So many watching online. I know for me, I did. When I became a follower of Jesus, He transformed this purposeless, selfish life into being a new creation and to having a purpose and a real hope to live for. Second thing is three days means we have a living hope. We have a living hope. Life is tough. Sorrow and sadness are a part 
of our human experience. I know many are going through difficulties right now, whether it's relationally, spiritually, physically. But you have a hope. You have a living hope that you're banking on. Humanity, we can endure the stuff of life if we have hope. It's when hope flickers out. That's when we, we suffer so great. But we have a living hope. You know what hope is? Hope is the confident expectation of God's faithfulness. It's knowing He's going to keep His word. He's going to keep His promises. It's not a wish. Like when you blow out birthday candles and as a little boy I wish for a new Tonka truck that I didn't get because that was a wish. Hope is no. And God is going to be faithful to His promises and to His word. Our hope has to be in something or someone that can't be taken from us. And that's Jesus. And that's eternal life. Later in this chapter, Paul says this, unless Christ was raised to life, your faith is useless and you're still living in your sins. And those people who died after putting their faith in him are completely lost. If our hope in Christ is good only for this life, we are worse off than anyone else. But Christ has been raised to life and he makes us certain that others will also be raised to life. Just as we will die because of Adam, we will be raised to life because of Christ. Adam brought death to all of us, and Christ will will bring life to all of us. But we must each wait our turn. Christ was the first to be raised to life, and His people will be raised to life when He returns. Let me know that's good news. Christ's death and resurrection again I say this every week. He defeated our enemies of sin, death, and the evil one. That's the gospel, to be announced, to be preached, to be embraced. He took care of our fear of death. And he assures us of our own resurrection one day when we will have bodies that can't die, that can't get sick, hopefully don't get fat, that won't die right? That's the the resurrection is a living hope. Three days means we have a living hope. And then lastly, three days means that we have a full life to live now. You might be coasting through life, going to work every Monday, doing the same old, same old. And you might be a little bored with how your life is going. Got to make money, hit the grind. I get it. But that doesn't mean you can't live a full life now regardless of what you do for a vocation or what you do to earn money. When we give our lives to what matters most to Jesus, you have a purpose that is greater than anything else. Knowing why God created you is the most important thing that you need to understand. He created you to have relationship with Him and to love people and to spend your life on what matters most to Him. We each get one life. One life. We can waste it on trivial things that don't remain, or we can give our lives to what matters most to Jesus. The quality of a life is not its length, it's its impact. An impact doesn't mean we're going to go save the world or, or, or whatever, it means that you're a faithful husband, that you're a faithful wife, 
that you're faithful in the little things, and that you have impact and influence on the lives around you. That's a full life. Paul, at the end of this chapter, tells them, he says, therefore, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, he's saying, in light of all that I just told you, put this to practice. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In the book of Romans, Romans 16, 23, Paul is listing out all these people he's thankful for and what they've done. And he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. He was the city treasurer of the town of Corinth. When Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church, he never made it to Rome. He wrote a letter to them after somebody had preached the gospel and started a church. And he writes this amazing book. But in the end, he says, the city treasurer of Corinth, he greets you. You read about Erastus in the book of Acts as somebody that went out on gospel journeys. And you you can see this picture. This is found in modern-day Corinth. If you could translate that, basically it says, Erastus, I paid for this pavement. I paid for this road with my own money. He used his own wealth to pay to pave the road, but we read in other places where he, man, he used his time, talent, and treasure to live the full life that Jesus told him to live. He gave his life for what mattered most to Jesus. Warren Wearsby, he said this, he said, the best is yet to come, so give him your best now. Eternal life is going to be better than, than this life, as good as life can be. Some of you are going, can we be there now? But I I get it. Life can be difficult. Life can bring joy. It brings sorrow. It's ups and downs. But the best is yet to come. So give your best now. And I'm talking to me. Not even, you, you do with it what you want to. But Scott, give Jesus your very best by how you love and treat people. I was reading this week out of the four Gospels, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus from each Gospel's point of view. And uh, I've probably read these accounts hundreds of times in my life, but a couple things really stood out to me that I want to live like two men that are kind of get a really quick um, explanation of their their role in, in the the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. The first is a guy named Simon of Cyrene. And Simon was a guy who in each account, we see that the soldiers just picked him out of a crowd and said, carry this man's cross. Shoulder Jesus's cross. Jesus was beat to a pulp and was very physically weak at that moment. And Simon of Cyrene is just minding his business. You know, it would have been normal for the people of Jerusalem to see people carrying crosses and being crucified because that's how the Romans did it. You know, often we think uh, it was on a hill far away that, that Jesus suffered. No, he suffered on the street. 
so that when people walked by and saw people crucified, it was the Romans telling you, hey, if you rebel against us, you're going on one of those crosses. It was their way of, of, of scaring people into obedience. Simon's minding his business walking down the road. They say, bro, carry this man's cross. So he has to shoulder the cross of Jesus. He probably got some of Jesus' blood on him. And he heard Jesus in agony and in the pain and the suffering that he was going through. As I read that, I thought, the thought hit me. How can we help Jesus carry his cross? He suffered for us. How can we help him carry his cross? Three things came to my mind. Share the hope that you have because of Jesus. People need to hear the hope that you have. They're going to ask questions about how do you still have hope in the middle of a hopeless world? Be prepared to answer the reason that the hope that you have. And then I thought, as the book of Galatians says, carry one another's burdens. And in this, you fulfill the law of Christ. You look around this room, you look around your life, there are people that are carrying some heavy burdens. They're hurting. Their marriage might be in trouble. Might finances, their health, they're fearful. We're called to carry one another's burdens. That's how we help Jesus carry his cross. Look to help somebody carry those burdens. And then share forgiveness. If somebody has wronged you or hurt you, forgive them as Christ forgave you, as he forgave me. We're not allowed to not forgive people. It's a mark that we follow Jesus when we're hurt by somebody. We forgive them from our heart. Forgiveness is not a feeling because you're not going to get over feelings, if you, especially if you've been betrayed to some degree. But you can forgive from your heart by not taking revenge and not continuing to bring up the offense. That's what forgiveness really means. Share forgiveness. You're helping Jesus carry his cross. Then I came across another guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a rich man that owned a couple of tombs, a couple of, of graves. And he was kind of a closet follower of Jesus. And he, he was afraid of the Jews, we read in a couple of the gospel accounts. But he believed Jesus was the Messiah. He just wasn't like super outspoken about his faith in Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, it says that he encouraged himself to go to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, to see if he could take Jesus' body off the cross and give him a proper burial. He was afraid. He had legitimate fear. But he had courage. He encouraged himself to go to Pilate. And you know what we need today? We need courage. We need courageous faith. We need courageous hope. And we need courageous love. We need to love those difficult people in our life. We need to love people who are prickly, so to speak. We need to love people who are hard-headed, hard-hearted. 
because God loves them. And we can love. We can have hope. We can have a confident expectation of God's faithfulness. And we can walk in faith. Faith is simply agreeing with Jesus about who He is. We don't make Him Lord. We don't make Him Savior. He's already those two things. We agree with Him. Yeah, Lord, You are the Lord of all and You are my Savior. That's agreement. That's faith. And we agree that He's good and that He's faithful in all that He has done for us. So if you'd stand with me. I wrote a prayer that I want us to pray out loud together. And maybe for some, this might be the first time you've come into agreement with Jesus. That he, who, who He is, what He's done, what He's going to do. And if it's your first time, that's awesome. For some of us, it might be a reaffirmation of what we already believe, what we already trust in Jesus. Maybe for some, it's a recommitment. A recommitment to Jesus, I want you to have every part of my life. I want you to have every part of my heart. I'm coming to you with my failures and my flaws and my imperfections. And I'm going to agree with you that you have done, you've overcome the world. You've overcome my sin. You've overcome death. You've overcome the evil one. We're trusting in Him. So let's pray this together. It'll be on the screen for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for sending Your one and only Son to live, die, and rise in my place. Jesus, I believe You are the resurrection and the life. By faith, I'm taking You at Your Word. I agree with You that You are my Savior. I agree with you, you are the Lord of all. Jesus, I am committing my life to follow you. Holy Spirit, lead and guide me. Help me to walk in the way of Jesus, to learn to love like he does. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would produce good fruit in my life. Jesus, I am a believer. I am trusting and banking on you and what you have done for me. In your name I pray. Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand? He's the best.